Hey all, it's David. I just wanted to make a little announcement before the show started. If you are a Stealing Home fan, you may be noticing two things. One, that this is the first episode up in a while, and I want to apologize for that. But there have been some big changes in the show, and the prep work for that simply took a little longer than I thought. I'm sorry. And please expect more frequent episodes going forward. Two, you may notice a new site. If you subscribe on iTunes, you may notice a new logo. All of that is because Stealing Home has paired up with The Hardball Times, a great website devoted to baseball. The Hardball Times is teamed with Fangraphs and acts as sort of a sister site, publishing one in-depth post a day about baseball. It's stats and history and commentary and humor, and now they have an official podcast. If you haven't already, please go to thehardballtimes.com and check it out. I write stuff on there. A bunch of other great authors write stuff on there. It's really great. And they are helping Stealing Home stay on the air, so to speak. So please show them some support. If you are new to the show, you may have already been a Hardball Times reader. And I say welcome. I hope you enjoy this episode. But please feel free to look back at older episodes too. I'm glad to have you aboard. Anyway, it's a very exciting time. And I'm very happy that this partnership has transpired. It's a way for Stealing Home to get a little financial backing and gain new listeners. And for the diehards, don't worry. The show isn't changing. We just have a bigger platform now. Now, on with the show. This is Stealing Home. I'm David Temple. If you look up the box score for the Royals-Yankees game from July 24th, 1983, it would look fairly innocuous. The Royals won 5-4. Mike Armstrong picked up the win for the Royals. Dan Quisenberry got the save. Depending on the box score, it might not even say that the game was actually completed almost a month later, on August 18th. Box scores are wonderful, and I certainly don't mean to disparage them, but this is where they fall a little short. Because not only was this game resumed 25 days later, it was resumed as a result of a protest and its subsequent resumption was played under protest by the other team. And it doesn't even come close to mentioning the conniving, the involvement by the league office and the court system, and the exploitation of seemingly harmless rules. This is, of course, the Pintar game. The Pintar game has become a bit of a footnote. You'll see it on a list of 50 crazy baseball moments or a happy anniversary article on the web every July 24th. But it's so much more. It all started innocently enough. George Brett hitting a home run to bring his team in the lead. Uh-oh! Uh-oh! That's gone! And now the Royals have the one-run lead. Then, for whatever reason, Yankees manager Billy Martin decided that this would be a good time to point out to the umpires something he'd been noticing for a little while. The amount of pine tar on Brett's bat. The rule stated that pine tar, or any foreign substance, could not exist on a bat handle past 18 inches. The rule was put in place sometime before, and was intended to prevent pine tar from getting on balls. Balls with pine tar on them would need to be replaced, which, way back when, was a financial burden to the home team. But Martin didn't seem to care about the intent of the rule. He pointed out the infraction to the umpires, who eventually negated Brett's home run and called him out. 
Brett was, how you say, less than impressed. They might be going to call George Brett out. Well, he is. He's out. Yes, sir. Brett is out. Look at look at this. Brett is out. And he's steaming mad. He is out and having to be forcibly restrained from hitting plate umpire Tim McClellan. And the Yankees have won the ball game four to three. Brett is called out for using an. And that's usually where the telling of this story ends, but it goes beyond that. First of all, the Bat Boy was immediately given the bat to hide so that the AL offices couldn't inspect it. Security chased him into the clubhouse. The Royals then protested, of course, and the matter was brought to the league president, Lee McPhail. McPhail had a better grasp of the spirit of the rule and overturned umpire Tim McClellan's decision of calling Brett out. Since the game was in New York, Brett's home run didn't end the game. Therefore, McPhail ordered the game be resumed at the spot after Brett's homer. The Yankees undoubtedly fought back. They resisted and resisted the ruling, waiting mostly to see if the game would have any standing in their playoff chances. But eventually they could stall no longer, and the game was rescheduled. Then, the courts got involved. The Yankees decided to charge anyone who wanted to see the end of the game a $2.50 admission. This sparked two lawsuits, and the Yankees insisted on an injunction on the game until the suits were settled. The injunction was granted, but immediately contested by the American League and overturned in appellate court. The Yankees finally conceded that anyone with a ticket stub from the original game could enter without paying admission. Once the game actually started, there were more shenanigans on the part of New York. Martin, still peeved about the decision in the first place, protested by putting pitcher Ron Guidry in center field. Guidry was taking the place of Jerry Mumphrey, the original center fielder who had since been traded to Houston. The original second baseman, Burton Campanaris, was hurt, so Martin placed the normal first baseman, Don Mattingly, there. But Mattingly was a lefty and ended up being one of the very few lefties to log time at second and remains the last left-hander to play second base in the majors. Once the game resumed, the pitcher threw to first to challenge that Brett never touched the base. Brett, who wasn't even at this game, as he'd been ejected back in July, was called safe. Billy Martin came out to protest, but umpire Dave Phillips was waiting for him and produced a signed affidavit from McPhail stating that all batters were safe after the home run was hit. They were one step ahead of Billy on this one. Martin announced the game was being played under his protest, then went into the clubhouse to watch Barney Miller. The Royals would eventually keep their lead and win the game. Neither team would make the postseason. No sport is without its scandals, certainly, but baseball seems to have two major issues in its history, gambling and steroids. Certainly these two things were, or are, still issues that need to be addressed but there are other nooks and crannies to explore. There are other dust-ups and incidents and historical oddities that can be just as interesting as Barry Bonds or Pete Rose. Things like the Pine Tar game. Sure, it's kind of silly, but it's a wonderful look into the confusing intersection of sportsmanship, written rules, unwritten rules, and the way players and the sport handle them. Not everything needs to be turned into a congressional hearing. Not everything needs to be a catastrophe or a scandal. 
Sometimes it's enough to just have some good old-fashioned intrigue. From the Frankie Frisch Memorial Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and thehardballtimes.com, this is Stealing Home. I'm your host, David Temple. We're going to dip our toes into the pool of intrigue, how mystery and cloak and dagger and rule bending all blend with baseball. I'll speak with author Rob Fitz, an expert on Japanese baseball, who has chronicled a series of events where diplomacy, uprising, and Babe Ruth all come together. Then, author Matthew Callan shares an excerpt from his book that takes a new spin on Fitz's story. Plus, the MVP of my heart. It's all coming up on Stealing Home. Let's play ball. In 1934, relations between Japan and the United States were wearing thin. Political differences were mounting. But representatives from both countries sought to alleviate some tension by organizing a tour of Major League Baseball players throughout Japan. They thought bringing the very best players of a game the Japanese loved, especially Babe Ruth, would figure as a goodwill gesture between the two nations. They did not, of course, expect a coup, an assassination attempt, and a possible spy scandal during all of this. But that's exactly what happened, and Rob Fitz chronicled it so well in his book Banzai Babe Ruth, Baseball, Espionage, and Assassination during the 1934 Tour of Japan. Rob Fitz, thank you for joining me on Stealing Home. Pleasure to be here. Now, uh, we're talking about your book, Banzai Babe Ruth, Baseball, Espionage, and Assassination During the 1934 Tour of Japan. Uh, I, have he- I had heard, uh, before I read your book, uh, a few you know, mini-stories here and there uh, about this tour, uh, but never in such a, a, a large capacity as what you presented. How did you first hear about this story? Well, the idea for the book actually started um, at a dinner meeting of the Society of American Baseball Research in Tokyo. We had just formed a group that was supposed to study Japanese baseball, and we got together, I think there were about six of us, and we were deciding what to write about. And I was advocating for the Yankees and Dodgers tours of the 50s, because I had really thought, the world knows enough about Babe Ruth. But I was outvoted by the Japanese. They all wanted to study Babe Ruth. And so left uh, Tokyo, and for about a month we worked as a group on uh, studying the 1934 tour. But like a lot of group projects, after, say, a week of initial enthusiasm, slowly people started dropping out. And six weeks after we had the idea, everybody left. And we decided just to bag the whole idea and not even do a, a group project. 
And uh, I'd say two or three years later, I was starting to think about um, new book ideas. I just finished a couple books on Japanese baseball, and I knew I wanted to pursue the topic, but I, I was looking for a, a book that might have a little broader appeal than a biography of a Japanese player. And I thought about this uh, 34 tour. So I started doing some background research, and I was reading a um, biography of Tojo, and I came across this, this small sentence that said, in November 1934, there is an attempted coup d'etat of the Japanese government that was foiled. And I really had a, a uh, eureka moment where I said, wait a minute, November 1934, this book doesn't mention it. This author probably has no clue that Babe Ruth is in Tokyo at the same time as this attempted coup. So I was up in New Hampshire on vacation at the time, and I couldn't wait to get home, leave my vacation, get back to work. And a few days later, I'm back in the library researching all I can about this attempted coup, which was really not news. It was hushed up by the government at the time. And News of this coup didn't come out until after World War II, when the Allies started looking into um, this event as part of the war crimes trials. So it took a lot of digging to get out the details. But once I did, and I realized you have a planned violent throw of the overthrow of the Japanese government at the same time as you have Babe Ruth and a group of American baseball players trying to promote uh, peace through baseball, and they all come together. Then I knew I had an interesting story. And in the middle of this whole thing is is catcher Mo Berg, who was part of this uh, this group of quote unquote all stars that that went over. Without you know, divul- we obviously want everybody to read the book. Without divulging <laughs> uh, too much, what can you tell us about how Mo Berg fits into this whole situation? Well, Mo Berg is of course, besides Babe Ruth, probably the most fascinating uh, figure of baseball at that time. And Moberg, of course, became a legitimate spy during World War II. And a lot of people have thought that he was a spy when he went over to Japan in 1934. And the reason they really believe this was Moberg did something very bizarre. During the last game of the tour, he says he's sick, and he stays in his hotel. Then, as soon as the team leaves... He gets dressed, he goes out in the city streets, and he's dressed up as a Japanese. He's not wearing Western clothing. He climbs the tallest tower in Tokyo, takes out his movie camera that he always carried with him, and scans it across the skyline, doing a 360-degree shoot of Tokyo. And he really focused on the harbor and other industrial things. And he goes back to his hotel. And he doesn't tell anybody about this until 1941, in the beginning of the war, when he brings these films to the War Department. Um, And then he's still pretty hush-up. In the late 1950s, when he starts to get a little older, he starts bragging about this to people, and the story comes out. So since about 1958-59, people have known this story that Berg says he did this, and the films still survive to prove that he actually did it. So people said, all right, why would a ball player do this? He must have been a spy already. But I'll give a little bit away. Is After extensive research, not only by me, but by some other people, there is no evidence that Mo Berg was a spy during this tour. But he acted really strangely. So you have to wonder what he was up to. I, I want to back up a little bit, uh, actually quite a bit, because um, I know that you're, you're one of the... Uh, one of the premier researchers, uh, American researchers of Japanese baseball. Uh, how did that whole, uh, how, did, how did your interest in Japanese baseball start? 
Well, my wife was actually a, a Japanese studies major in college, and she became an attorney. And um, we were married a couple of years when she went over to Tokyo on a business trip. And she was supposed to be there for two weeks. And the end of the uh, two weeks, I get a phone call saying, I've got to spend, and spend another week in Tokyo. I'm like, all right. The end of the third week, I get another phone call. I've got to spend another week in Tokyo. You know, this has been a month now. I'm like, well, all right. Next week, you know, another phone call and saying, uh, I think you better come over. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, I'm going to be here a really long time. It turned out to be two years. And so I went along. I was writing my Ph.D. dissertation at the time. I, I was mobile. Um, so we moved to Tokyo for two years while she worked on uh, some projects. And uh, I finished up writing uh, my dissertation. And during my free time, which I made sure I had plenty of, I learned as much as I could about Japanese baseball. Now, when when writing this book, um, you, know, you know, technology makes things easier as far as research goes, a little bit easier. But because of the the time of this story, that this that this story took place, I imagine that you know, obviously, not everything's online, and, and <laughs> researching this stuff can can be pretty difficult. How did you go about gathering all this information that you needed for your story? This was one project where I would say just about I'm going to say almost nothing was online, um, because. I mean, I could look at the uh, New York Times online and the uh, Chicago Tribune and Washington Post. So I don't want to say nothing was online, but those articles really didn't tell me much about what was going on. Um, online, what it was good for was finding people who might know something um, and, and tracking them down. And that way, I was able to get in touch with Babe Ruth's daughter, Julia Ruth Stevens, who was on the tour herself. She's the last surviving member and speak to her, and she read out portions of her diary to me. And I found the uh, daughter of um, Rabbit Wurstler, the shortstop for the tour, and she had her parents' diary from the tour. Um, but most of the work was real old-fashioned uh, research, going to Tokyo, um, going through old magazine articles. Um, I was lucky enough to find the Japanese... Um, liaison between the Americans and the Japanese was a fellow named uh, Sotora Suzuki. And um, I was able to get in touch with his daughter, and she had all of his papers. So I spent some time at her house in uh, Tokyo going through the papers, which luckily enough were in English. Um, even though he was in Japanese, he was fluent in English, and he wrote all his personal notes in English for security reasons, so people oh. couldn't read them. You know, lucky me, huh? <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, because I imagine, I mean, are you, how, how good is your Japanese? You know, it's, it's horrible. Okay. My Japanese is absolutely horrible. <laughs> so that must make it a little bit harder, too, for this, for this research if a lot of this stuff yes. is in Japanese. Yes, I had to hire a translator um, to work with me. So we would go into the library, and um, I would say, all right, I know this book exists. I, I've, you know, I've, I've seen a source citing it. Um, so we'd go to the card catalog, and she would find the book for me, and I'd look at it. And I, you know, I could recognize enough characters that I could say, all right, this is something I really need translated. And we'd sit down together and read through it. Um, so we did a lot of that when we were in Tokyo. Did you find any uh, surprises? I mean, you must have... W w I should rephrase that. You probably found some surprises in your research. Is there anything that, that jumps to mind? Um, well, of course, the whole idea of the coup, which is why I got started, was a big surprise. No one else had ever put those two events together. Um, other things, let me think, 
I guess one of the biggest surprises was really um, how Babe Ruth came across as such a leader during this tour. Um, there's been kind of a tendency in the last 20 years, a kind of a backlash against Babe Ruth, where he's portrayed as kind of this big oaf. And, you know, some of the movies portray him that way. And he was um, not only incredibly charismatic, but he was very smart. I mean, maybe not book smarts, but he really understood baseball and he understood people. And throughout the tour, he knew that he was an ambassador to Japan. And he behaved extraordinarily well and really was the leader of the team, making sure that uh, everybody pulled their weight and everybody went out there to make, to um, ensure that the tour went over well with the Japanese fans. And he was, I mean, that, uh, part of the... A part of this this tour was uh, an audition of sorts, at least at the beginning, because he, he this whole time um, he he was really interested in becoming a manager. His playing days were were winding down, were pretty much over, and he wanted to stay in baseball. And he first he tried to to uh, get a job managing the Yankees, and that didn't that didn't really pan out. And then there was talk, at least, of uh, Connie Mack, who also came on the trip with the team, uh, was maybe thinking about retiring and and putting in Ruth uh, to take over his A's. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And the stories really come from, well, stories come from two sources. One is they came from Mac's memoirs, but um, the press kind of thought something was going on here. And there was a lot of writing in New York while the team was in Japan saying, um, Ruth is really auditioning to be manager of the Philadelphia Athletics. Uh, let's see how he does. And at the beginning of the tour, Max says in his memoirs that, yes, he really expected to be offering Ruth the job um, of manager of the athletics by the end of the tour. But uh, according to the memoirs, he didn't like the relationship of Claire Ruth, his wife, uh, the babe's wife, um, and the babe. He felt that uh, Claire was running the show too much and that um, he was afraid that uh, Claire would have too much say in running the athletics. And he didn't want that. So he decided, even by the time they had left Hawaii, which was the first stop on this tour, that uh, Babe would not be managing the athletics in 1935. Well, between, I mean, Babe Ruth is always, uh, you know, just such an interesting character. Um, and I kind of small C character uh, just in, in the whole history of baseball. And you mix that in with... Uh, with coups and uh, possible uh, spy trips by by major league catchers, and it really makes for for such uh, a great story. The book is called Bonsai Babe Ruth: Baseball Espionage and Assassination During the 1934 Tour of Japan. It's by my guest Rob Fitz. Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Bonsai Babe Ruth is available in hardcover and as a Kindle edition. You can find it wherever great books are sold. In our previous conversation with Rob Fitz, we heard a little bit about catcher Mo Berg, who came over for the Japanese tour, possibly or not possibly, to do some spying on the Japanese and author Matthew Callan takes it a step further, envisioning a world where the Moberg Society exists, a secret intelligence group that uses baseball as a front for its spy work. In Callan's book, Hang a Crooked Number, 
he looks at the double life of the main character, Backstop, both as a middling minor league catcher and as a spy in training. A note to younger or more sensitive listeners, I usually bleep out expletives on this show, but in this case, I'm going to leave them in because I think it's really important to the telling of the story. So you've been warned. Here's Callan reading an excerpt from his book. Hang a Crooked Number is the story of a catcher that the reader just knows as Backstop and his struggles to make it to the major leagues as both a catcher and a spy in a world where baseball is a thinly veiled front for domestic spying activities. That's sort of the logline of the book. Uh, in the excerpt that I'm going to read, uh, this is a flashback to when he was a teenager and was first recruited to be part of this scheme. For most of my high school career, I was the second best hitter on the team with a plus glove at a demanding position, and I still went mostly unnoticed. This would have happened even without my disappearing act, because my team had Taylor Burns, a scout's wet dream, a power stroke, speed and grace of a gazelle, and looks of a tween sitcom star. He batted at least 400 for all four years and could hit doubles at will. We could barely believe he was playing for our school, which was middle of the pack at best when it came to baseball. Taylor had done something stupid to get kicked out of his last school, a prep with a much better program. He either got a cheerleader pregnant or crashed a golf cart while drunk, or did both simultaneously, depending on which rumor you chose to believe. Taylor considered the fact that he was in our school and not some better place the height of injustice. He took it out on our equipment, muttering, cheap-ass cage, when he dug in for BP, or shoot-ass bus, when it was time to load up on our rickety transportation to a road game. He considered our school beneath him, an opinion fostered by his father, a former player from the Astros system with a high-octane personality that made my dad's pale in comparison. He barked at every called strike inflicted on his child and got thrown out of dozens of games for abusing the umpire, or fans of the other school, or the opposing manager, or our manager. From freshman year on, the scouts came out in droves to see Taylor hit. Major League, college, even a few delusional souls from the independent leagues who hoped his diva rep would scare off other suitors with deeper pockets. Taylor couldn't decide his future until he was a senior, of course. I think the scouts genuinely wanted to watch him play. They were always easy to spot, men who looked wrinkled no matter how old they were. Khakis or tan shorts, polo shirt with their master's logo on the breast, sun-faded cap. They would settle down in the bleachers next to Taylor's dad and talk up the merits of their particular organization. When a scout looked free, my dad would intercept him and plead my case. What do you think of that catcher? Some arm, huh? Dad didn't understand that the last thing a scout wants is a solicitation. The greatest thrill a scout can get is to perceive talent where no one else has. Being told a player is talented, by the player's dad no less, insults their sense of dignity. Some scouts would listen politely for as long as they could stand it, then find an excuse to break away. Others would leave dad mid-sentence. None expressed the slightest bit of interest in me. You want to hear what this one schmuck said to me? He howled one night over a dinner of microwave shumai from the Asian grocery store downstairs from our apartment. I told him, just stick around, watch you hit. He says to me, I don't got a sheet on your kids, son. I don't got a sheet. I don't know what I'm looking for. Can't believe you call me son, redneck piece of shit. Dad felt deeply, personally insulted by the scout's idiocy and rudeness, but I was relieved. The last thing I wanted was to put myself under a scout's microscope. If you couldn't get me scouted by a major school, Dad's post-high school plan for me was to enroll in a local junior college and get some attention that way. My plan was to find a job and save enough money to split town on my own, start somewhere else, anywhere. And then, midway through senior year, Dad finally saw his dream come true. During a game, as I rose from my crouch to return to the dugout, I saw Dad out in the bleachers sitting next to this odd character. He wore a pair of dark sunglasses that glinted in the sun, but the rest of his outfit looked as if it was stolen from someone vacationing circa 1958. 
a gray pork pie hat sat low in his head, a tiny feather stuck in its band. His shirt was off-white with angular designs, the kind worn by old Cuban guys playing dominoes. It was tucked into the waist of his pants, a pair of gray slacks with pleats sharp enough to cut butter. He could have sent Morse code with the shine in his shoes, but the oddest thing of all was the fact that when Dad stopped talking, the man talked back to him, his hands punctuating the points I couldn't hear. No one had ever returned Dad's interest before. He had the air of a seasoned con man, someone whose artifice is invisible to everyone except other tricksters. On the car ride home, I asked Dad who he was talking to during the game. He could barely wait to tell me. He's a scout, Dad said, his voice almost cracking. From the Mets, can you believe it? I played it pretty cool, trying not to press him on anything. He exhaled long and loud, telling me he'd actually done the opposite. He wants to take us to lunch tomorrow, just to talk, he says, but sounds promising. Dad was on cloud nine. My stomach plunged. The next day, we met up with the scout at a chain restaurant, wood paneling lined with artificially yellowed photographs of old mills and prospectors and cowboys. Dad brought us there well ahead of the meeting time. We sat in the booth for 25 minutes while he nursed a coke and did his best to stop his knee from shaking. The scout arrived looking virtually the same as he had the day before, outfits still trapped in the 50s. He wore sunglasses into the restaurant and did not remove them once during our meeting. Dad nearly leapt to his feet to shake the man's hand, but I remained seated. The scout held out his own hand, and I took my sweet time returning the gesture. "'Nice to meet you,' the scout said. "'This is Mr. Kuzman,' Dad said, his voice shaking. "'He's a scout for the Mets.' "'Kuzman, like Jerry?' I asked. "'Yes, like Jerry, but no relation,' Kuzman chuckled. "'Mr. Kuzman's been watching you for a while. He's interested in having you attend a tryout.' Every syllable that came out of Dad's mouth was slightly higher than the last. "'It's not a tryout per se,' Kuzman said. "'It's more of an amateur camp. We bring some kids your age in and put them in a special training facility. "'If you do well, I can guarantee we'll be taking you in the draft next summer. "'And no matter what happens, it still looks good on your resume if you decide you'd rather go to college. "'Sound like something you might be interested in?' I stared and said nothing, trying to look dumb, playing the ungrateful brat. I hoped Kuzman would react like the girls from school, give up on me, and move on when I cocooned. Kuzman leaned forward, clasped his hands together on the table, and tilted his head, and stared right back at me, baring his teeth the slightest bit. I blinked. Dad broke his pose to retrieve his cell phone from his pocket. I hadn't heard a ringtone or a buzz, but he played it up big, even blanching and raising his eyebrows when looking at his phone's display. Shit, it's a foreman. I gotta take this. Listen, why don't you guys talk, get to know each other? This won't take me too long. Dad trotted outside to complete his ruse. I expected Kuzman to launch into a hard-sell sales pitch the second Dad left, but he continued to stare at me without a word. I took a sip from my soda, but kept my eyes on him as I did. He didn't move an inch. He was willing to wait as long as it took for me to speak first. "'You're not really a scout, are you?' I asked. "'What makes you say that?' Kuzman asked back, settling back in the booth. "'You don't look like one.' "'What does a scout look like?' "'Not you. We're not all made in a factory, you know. "'Dad wants me to play in the big so bad you're able to fool him, but you can't fool me. "'You seem very sure of yourself. How am I trying to fool him, exactly?' MLB teams can't talk to amateurs until they've used up their high school eligibility. Well, that's true, yes, but you're sort of a gray area since you lost almost a whole year of school thanks to your father's road trips. That was in junior high. You couldn't have offered me a tryout or anything close to it if you were from a real MLB team. And your name is Kuzman? Come on. My name could be Kuzman. It's not, though. Kuzman smiled. I don't work for the Mets, at least not directly. Well, who do you work for directly? He avoided answering for a moment, preferring to consult the restaurant's drink menu, nestled between a quartet of hot sauce dispensers. I've been watching you play, he said. You're pretty good. Thanks. Not great, but good. I'm hitting close to 350 this season, but if you think that's not great, sure. 
My tepid self-defense was more a knee-jerk reaction to an insult than a reflection of belief. After working so hard for so long to not be noticed, it was hard to inject enthusiasm into the statement. Kuzman chuckled to himself again. It was a low smoker's laugh with peaks of tar blocking its escape. You're a very good high school ball player for as far as that goes. You have what it takes to get drafted by a major league team in the late rounds, get some spring training invites, maybe even make a roster someday. That is, if any big league team wanted to invest in you. None of them do, because none of them think you have what it takes to excel in the majors. You might have had a chance if someone had found you earlier and gotten you all the extra practice you needed to be ahead of the game at this point in your development. I understand that your personal circumstances couldn't allow for that. That's not fair, but that's life, so here we are. What do you know about my personal circumstances? I stared daggers at him, but his eyes hidden behind sunglasses, the death stare lost its strength. I won't go blow by blow, Kuzman said. Losing your mom when you were 12, having your dad drag you across the country on some wild goose chase only to wind up back in some dump in Florida. Must have been tough on you. My face burned. In retrospect, I could tell Kuzma was just trying to make me emotional, get me off my guard, put me in a place where he was my only life raft. At the time, though, I saw no Machiavellian motives. I just thought he was being a dick. If nobody thinks I can make it in the majors, why are you here? I asked. I never said you couldn't make it in the majors, Kuzman said, shaking his head no for far too long. I said you can't excel. Luckily for you, I represent people who are specifically looking for players who won't excel. There are other ways for you to play the game while serving your country at the same time. I'm not joining the army, buddy. The army is not what I have in mind. I wonder if you've ever heard of a man named Mo Berg. I shook my head no. It sounded like the name of an accountant. Mo Berg played in the majors back in the 20s and 30s. He was a catcher, just like you. He was a brilliant man, went to Princeton, got a law degree from Columbia. He even studied at the Sorbonne in the off-season. What you have to understand is, back then, playing baseball was not a respectable job. Sure, people loved the game, but they didn't want their sons growing up to be ball players. Baseball players didn't make any money, they gambled, they drank, they fought, and they hopped from town to town like sailors. So when word got around that there was an Ivy League-educated catcher in the major leagues, people could hardly believe such a thing existed. He became something of a darling of the press, a curiosity everyone wanted to know and get a piece of. He was also, Kuzman added, a spy. I would later learn Berg's story forward and backwards, how he was sent on barnstorming trips to the Far East with players whose talent he couldn't even approach for the purposes of gathering intelligence in his spare time, how he worked for the OSS during World War II, and how his example was the inspiration for the establishment of the Mo Berg Society. In society lore, his story is only rivaled by the gurus. For the moment, though, Kuzman kept Berg's story short and sweet. Nowadays, the major leagues contain dozens of Mo Bergs, Kuzman revealed. Men whose spots and rosters are covers for the gathering and passing of intelligence. Their work is more essential than ever in the modern world. I believe you could be a valuable asset to that work. I looked down at my soda, watched the bubbles rise to the top and the ice cubes contract a millimeter at a time. I noted the odd hue cast on the cola from the cup's transparent red exterior. I concentrated on these things because they seemed so real and this conversation seemed so unreal. This is nuts. Why are you telling me all this? What if I say no? That grin again. We watch people for a long time before we dare to make contact. We learn as much as possible about every aspect of their lives and their personalities. We're very careful about who we recruit. In other words, I wouldn't have approached you if I wasn't sure you'd say yes. Listen, Kuzman said, I don't expect you to be patriotic. I don't expect you to get all fired up about terrorists. You're 17 years old. I don't expect you to get all fired up about anything except that chick in your chemistry class. I blushed because there was a girl in my chemistry class that I'd been eyeing from afar. As usual, I silently demanded to be approached rather than approach her. For the first time, Kuzman looked at me, really looked at me. 
Though he didn't take off his sunglasses, I could tell his eyes were looking right into mine. He did it to prove to both of us that he could. Here's what you must know before you make any decision. This country that you live in has provided you with an enormous amount of comforts, things that you don't ever think about because you're so used to having them. Above all, this country offers a precious thing that many in this world do not. It allows you the luxury of being left alone. You go to school, you work a job, you spend all day around people you don't care about, people you don't give a rat's ass about, people who don't give a rat's ass about you, people who seem like they were only put on this planet to annoy the living shit out of you. But at some point, you get to go home and not deal with those people for a while. You have time that is yours and yours alone. And there are many places in this world where that simple right is unthinkable. And there are people in this world who want to make sure that this country, this country that you're living in right now, will not allow you to be left alone. This opportunity I'm offering to you right now will ensure that every man, woman, and child in this country can continue to be left alone. Dad returned at this moment, looking sweaty, not so much from being outside in the hot Florida sun as from worrying about what was happening beyond his gaze. He switched his eyes between us, first me, then Kuzmin, then to me again, back and forth, searching for a sign that would make him happy. I think this might be something I want to do, I said. Matthew Callan's book, Hang a Crooked Number, is available as a Kindle download on Amazon.com, though you can read it on a Mac or a PC or an iPad or an Android tablet or a phone, you name it. To find out more about him, go to ScratchBomb.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at ScratchBomb. To end every episode, I like to look at someone who, for reasons on the field or off, deserve a little love. It's the MVP of my heart. What makes someone a cheater? Is it as simple as just breaking the rules? Are people who break certain rules worse than people who break other rules? What about those who bend rules? And at what point is a rule bent? And when is it broken? Americans have a certain love affair with those who bend the rules, and even some who break them. Think about all the movies glorifying mobsters. Think of all the television shows portraying a cop or a doctor that forges their own path, does whatever it takes. Even the main character in the show Breaking Bad, a guy who cooks methamphetamine, is shown early on as a bit of a hero. We are trained to look past the act, to look at the character the story, the purpose. And this is how Gaylord Perry is seen as a hero, not a villain. Perry was a cheater, plain and simple. I'm not talking steroids. No one ever accused him of that, and frankly, he didn't really match the body style of a juicer. But he still willingly broke the rules time and time again. And now he's in the Hall of Fame. Over the years, Perry became a master at doctoring the ball. It started with good old-fashioned saliva. He would lick his fingers, pretend to wipe his hands on his pants, then use the spit to get the ball to cut downward and away. A devastating pitch that would help him earn 3,534 career strikeouts and 314 wins. And after folks caught on to his spitballing ways, he changed it up. Gone was the licking of fingers. He instead would hide foreign substances on his person and use that to doctor the ball. Petroleum jelly, grease, hair tonic, whatever was available, 
behind his ear, on his left wrist, in his jersey, wherever he could find a hiding place, Perry would place these substances and use them to make the ball dart in a split second. In the press, he was always coy about it, always denied it, but everyone knew. His teammates, the umpires, the league office, the fans, they were all in on the gag. Perry even titled his autobiography, Me and the Spitter. But just as effective as his spitball, perhaps more even, was the illusion that he was going to throw the spitball. He didn't use it every time, but he would still move his pitching hand in weird ways, touching certain parts of his head or jersey. Even if he wasn't reaching for some substance, he would make hitters think he was, which would cause them to look for it specifically, allowing Perry to trick them with whatever pitch he wanted. And this went on for years. Perry was constantly under persecution. Umpires would make him remove his cap, roll up his pant legs, change his uniform. One time, an umpire wiped down Perry's face and neck with a towel. Billy Martin brought a bloodhound to a game to sniff balls for substances. Managers and players would complain about him in the papers, and through it all, Perry just smiled and denied. Smiled and denied. And with all these eyes on him, all these checks by umpires and tantrums by managers, Perry was ejected one time. On August 23rd in 1982, while pitching for the Mariners, he finally got caught with Vaseline on a ball in a game against the Red Sox. It took the umpire 742 appearances, 5,128.2 innings pitched, and 20,993 batters faced. But they finally got their man. Perry was ordered to leave the game. Gaylord Perry cheated. Everybody knows it. And yet, for some reason, he skirted the same disdain that those convicted or even suspected of PED usage have. And I'm not quite sure why. He did things that helped him perform better that were strictly against the rules. The things helped him get into the record books and the Hall of Fame. Was he better than a PED user? I tend to be more liberal than most when it comes to the PED debate, but even I think Perry somehow transcended it. Maybe it was because he was so crafty about it. Steroid users are brash, so cavalier in their ideas that a bottle will help them get stronger and perform better. It was too easy just to inject or ingest something and improve. Perry had to be sneaky about it. He had to create a plan of attack and execute. It was more clandestine, more cloak and dagger. It was more like a movie. Maybe that's why it seems better. Perry will forever be known as that sneaky little pitcher, that master of the greaseball. He's a no-good, dirty cheater. And people will line up to see him for the rest of his days. And for that, Gaylord Perry is the MVP of my heart. Stealing Home is written and produced by me, David Temple, with all original music by me. You can find out more about the show by going to stealinghome.org. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stealinghomeradio and on Twitter at stealinghomeorg. 
You can subscribe to Stealing Home on iTunes, and while you're there, it would be great if you could leave a nice rating and review for us as well. You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Temple, and make sure to check out thehardballtimes.com. That's all for now. We'll see you next time on Stealing Home.